The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. In a time when people all over are having trouble communicating with those who see things differently, it is my fervent vision that vegans won't splinter with squabbling about ethical vegans versus health vegans, abolitionists versus welfareists, vegan or plant-based, saint or sinner, my way or the highway. We don't have to agree about everything to agree about some very important things. I'm Victoria Moran of Main Street Vegan. Welcome to our program today. If you are vegan or vegetarian or veg-curious or simply checking out all the wonderful offerings here at Unity Online Radio, we could not be happier that you're spending this time with us. After the break, we'll be talking with the noted Alzheimer's researcher, Rudolf Tanzi, Ph.D. He's Deepak Chopra's co-author on books you may know, Super Gene and Super Brain. And he is a man who will tell you that the music of your teens and 20s, whatever your generation, may help protect you from memory loss in later life. Cool, isn't it? But right now, we're going to be focusing on early life, on kids and families, and what to feed everybody when you've decided to get the animals off the plate and focused on the healthiest vegan foods that are out there. So have we got something for your cookbook shelf? It is the China Study Family Cookbook by Chef Del Stroof, our first guest. Del Stroof is the co-owner and chef at the Wellness Forum in Columbus, where after a lifetime of yo-yo dieting, he has lost over 200 pounds on a low-fat plant-based diet, and he has turned his wonderful appreciation of food and his understanding of healthy eating into a whole slew of fabulous cookbooks. The China Study Quick and Easy Cookbook was one. Another was the, oh, over-the-top bestseller, Forks Over Knives, the cookbook. Welcome, Chef Del Stroof. Hey, Victoria, it's good to be with you again. Well, wonderful to be with you and to be with your book, which I have been reading this morning and looking through. Of course, I first check out your mac and cheese recipe. I say this to every cookbook author, whether they're raw, whatever, whoever, if they got a mac and cheese, I got to try it. So um, yours is way good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I love mac and cheese and... 
Um, I just judged a mac and cheese cooking contest vegan here in Columbus this past weekend, and the thing that was so hard was they're also full of fat. Oh, yeah. So rich in fat. And I said, you know what? I'm glad that mine isn't. It may not win a contest, but we we keep the fat down to a much more manageable level. So, Well, so so tell us how you do that, because being somewhat as of a lay connoisseur of vegan mac and cheese, it seems like, you know, there's certain things you can expect. You can either go the complete fat route. I mean, I've seen them with melted margarine. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or you can do more the nut-based, like one that I've used for many, many years is, is cashews and uh, nutritional yeast and tomatoes. Um, but and then you can even go less fat than that. So tell us what you do. Well, I took the uh, – and I, I had just discovered this version um, the past, before I read the cookbook of, for a potato-based cheese sauce. And I was like, huh, that doesn't sound good. But I thought, okay, we'll try it. And this version had not only a half a cup of cashews in it, but then another half a cup of oil in it. And I was like, oh, my God, we can't go that route. So we immediately threw the oil out and decided, well, let's see if we can do this and get rid of some of the cashews even. So we we managed to get from a half a cup of cashews to – I think two or three tablespoons of cashews and uh, two tablespoons of tahini, uh, so e- about half of what even just the cashews would have called for. And uh, I think we, you know, the nutritional yeast is still there, a little bit of uh, red pepper and some onion, and, and um, it comes together very, very quickly and easily, and it's creamy. When you puree the potatoes, you get that creaminess, um, mm-hmm. the full flavor, and uh, I'm very proud of it. Oh, yeah, and I, I mean... I, I think that's a little bit classic, the cheesy potato. You know, in the regular conventional world, cheesy potato soups are very popular, and we have some, obviously, in, in the vegan world as well. So uh, to to let it turn into cheese sauce for macaroni, why not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and you- I- it really it, it it cleans up nicely, I should say. <laughs> and you know, it's so funny, Dell. From certainly the way I was brought up, my dad was a diet doctor, and I can remember how many times I heard, "You don't want two starches at one meal. If you're going to have macaroni, you certainly don't want potatoes in yeah. there." Yeah. I and know. what we know now is it's the opposite. I know the starchophobes are just dying over an idea like macaroni with potato sauce. <laughs> They've got to yeah, be the thing. I, it, it, oh, gosh. Now, one of the questions here, I always ask my guests for some sample questions, and it really helps me kind of get into the the mind and the lives of the people that I'm talking to. But you have used the most wonderful verb. Your question is, how can home cooks plantify their classic family favorites? So I want to know how they can do that, and I also want to know where you came up with plantify. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm known around the um, um, office here as kind of a wordsmith where um, words randomly, new words randomly come out of my mouth, and, and that was one of them. So I'm afraid it's just a little, a little um, impulse of mine to, to turn one word into another. Um, so that's how that happened. I think it just came out one day, and of course, everyone's like, "Ah, that's a new word." I'm like, "Okay, write it down," and then there it was. Is it in the book? Um, I don't know if it made it into the book or not. You know, editors are funny about words like yeah. that. Always well, trying that, to bring you back to good good language skills. Of course. But I remember as a little girl, very much into trying to be smart and literate. I read somewhere that if a word appears in print, it then is a word. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I've heard for the a few next rules about when words become words. They, they, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's one of them. Another one is the, um, the falling into common usage or even somewhat accepted usage. So right. um, well, you and I that... have helped solidify that word's place. Yeah. So to that end, how, how do we plantify classic family favorites? Well, I, I think one of the goals um, is, is sometimes we we try too hard to do that. And what I mean is, is we we like I, I tasted recently a carrot dog, which is a recipe that I have in the book, and I had it at a re- local restaurant, which I was excited to see, and the flavor was so over the top I almost couldn't eat it. 
So I, I think my first rule is to back off and don't think that you have to, to go full impact on with this flavor thing. Sometimes just a hint of what you're trying to do. In other words, the spices of hot dogs are wonderful, but they're pretty subtle. I mean, you, you can barely distinguish cloves or, or the mace that are in traditional spices for hot dogs. Um, and I think the same is true for a lot of other foods. So I've made mac and ch- or, or, or nutritional yeast-based cheese sauces since 1989. And my, my first recipe came from the New Farm Vegetarian Cookbook um, out of the farm in Tennessee, which was published oh. in the 70s. Um, and back then, that was the sauce that we knew. But it was so... There was a group of us that loved it and still love it, but it wasn't for everyone. So new sauces, I've, I've learned to, to push back a little bit, cut back a little bit on that, bam. So this, this cheese sauce is, is a milder cheese sauce. Like you're not going to think of it as distinctly anything. And it makes it very adaptable for a lot of different recipes. In other words, you can use this for, we make queso sauce out of it by adding a little bit of lime and some cilantro. Um, we make our mac and cheese. We, we do any number of things, make a pizza sauce out of it. And it does really well because it's not dominating with that nutritional yeast flavor. Um, instead, it, it hints at what it is we're trying to achieve. And, I, and of course, I think it fools the mind just because you've told people that it's a cheese sauce, then they, they, they think it's a cheese sauce. Right. So I think to a degree, you know, the wording is very interesting. Cheese sauce, I think we need to go with cheese sauce. But on some of these other things, I think maybe we just need to be happy with an allusion to, like I always remember going to dinner in Chicago with a guy named John St. Augustine, wonderful classic radio guy, been in the radio business forever, was working with Oprah at the time that we had this dinner. We went to a wonderful raw food restaurant and he ordered something called a burger. Now, you and I both know that raw food can be amazing, but when it's called a burger, it's not going to be like somebody who goes to McDonald's is thinking burger. Right, right. And sure enough, it wasn't. And I cannot, I talk to this man maybe every year and a half, and every time I do, he says, you were the woman who tried to kill me with that thing called a burger. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That's what happens, you know. We we our, our 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 ability to interpret and then to understand interpretation uh, it varies depending on who you're talking to. So I think uh, I try not too hard. And you know, another thing I do is is I try not to feed people who are new at this foods that they probably have never like quinoa. Love quinoa, but I don't feed it to people who are who are, who are used to burgers and fries on their menu. Mm-hmm. So making what do you it feed approachable. Them? Um, I, you know, people understand rice. People mm-hmm. understand a stir-fried rice. People understand potatoes. So you'll mm-hmm. actually find some really good roasted potatoes in my book. And a potato wedge, it's kind of like an oil-free uh, french fry. Ooh, um, I want that. All right. See? <laughs> you, you find those kinds of foods that are in there so that, again, is it going to be as crispy and greasy and blah, 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 blah? No. But it's full of flavor. It's It's got a nice texture to it. it it's creamy on the inside and all those things. And... And people respond positively to that. How about the hardest audience on earth? And that is kids, particularly kids whose parents want to change the family diet. And it wasn't their idea. Yeah, I think with kids, you you have to have a couple of rules. One is, um, I I think, getting them involved in the kitchen. If you're going to make change, then you want them involved in the change. And I'm all about getting the kids in the kitchen and then giving them a range choices. I mean, you know, if you're trying to get them to eat healthier, then of course you're not going to say give one of those choices um, will be pepperoni pizza. Uh, one of those, but the choices could be, well, let's have pizza, but I have some new ideas for toppings. Love you to help me with them. So getting kids yeah. involved and then giving them that range of choices with an unhealthy range and letting them be a part of that kind of decision-making, a part of the shopping, a part of the food prep in any way that they can. At different ages, you have different approaches. With older kids, uh, they're going to roll their eyes at you, and you're lucky if anything happens. But that's that's not always true. So that doesn't mean that you don't try. With younger kids, sometimes you know it's, it's a little easier because um, um, they're a little more flexible and they're not used to everything yet. Mm-hmm. But I think making them a part of the equation and getting them involved is is, is a big, 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 big win for everybody. One, because as, as I say, kids who cook become grown-ups who cook, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a win-win situation too. 
It is indeed. Now, I know that you're approaching this primarily from the health side. And just in observing vegan families for, for many years, that seems to be the hardest sell for kids. You know, it's one thing to take kids of, you know, pretty much any age to a farm sanctuary and say, there's the pig who did not become a hot dog. There's the chicken who did not become a nugget. That's very clear. But we're going to do this so that we don't get heart disease is a hard sell for a kid. Well, I think, and I think you're right. I mean, kids are a long way from that. But I think, and especially with teenagers, there are ways to to make this attractive for them. In other words, you want better skin. What teenager doesn't want to have clear skin wants to be acne-free? What young athlete doesn't want to, to perform better and recover better from from the activity they're engaged in? Well, this kind of a diet helps with that. Yeah. Right? So you, 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 you look for ends, um, ways in to their world and, and approach it from that perspective. And, and you'll gain a little traction that way, I think. Well, and, and your book is full of traction. I mean, you not only have fabulous recipes, but you've got actual instruction and you've even got it down to by the age group. You know, if your kid is this age, try it this way. If your kid is this age, try it this way. So it's very, very instructive. And I think this is so important because just about the only flack people get anymore for not eating animals and eating in a way that's different from the general public is when they're raising children and, and you'll still see these awful scary headlines. So I think all the, the support that parents can get for, for raising children in the most nutritious way possible is so important, but then everybody's busy. So what are your suggestions for how people with, you know, two jobs and a bunch of sports teams and whatnot can do to get more of that nutrition into their lives and their daily meals? Uh, you know, I think that um, whenever I write a cookbook for the rest of my life, um, I may follow the guidelines that I used in the China Study Quick and Easy Cookbook, which is kind of a, a cook-wants-eat-all-week mentality. Um, learn to batch cook. Make two batches of mac and cheese and throw one in the freezer so that uh, uh, 10 days down the road you get a day off from cooking. Um, pick a day to cook. Uh, if you can cook four or five hours on a, or even four hours on a Sunday, you only have to clean the kitchen once, right? And then you have you have enough to get you through the week. I do this for myself. I make I only I live alone, so I make two or three dishes that I, I nibble on throughout the week. Another thing is is learning how to take one dish and make it into a couple of different things, and you'll see that in some of my – so cheese sauce, if you make a double batch of cheese sauce, you've got mac and cheese, and you've got cheese sauce left over for pizza night. Oh, nice. Um, and that kind of thinking, I think, is, is, is the way to go. So you're not exactly eating leftovers all week, but you're taking um, one food and, and repurposing it. So there's a recipe for a millet meatball, a Mediterranean millet ball uh, in the cookbook, which could also be used as a topping for pizza, which could be used for spaghetti and meatballs, which for which you could make subs. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's kind of the way to go. My mother did that. My mother would make a, and, and, and of course it was meat based, but she would make, um, uh, cook a big turkey, um, one every now and then. And then she would take it and day one we'd have turkey and our, our mashed potatoes and gravy. And day two we had turkey sandwiches for lunch. Day three we had turkey tetrazzini, um, with the leftovers and then turkey soup on day four. So she was really good at taking that one thing. And, and she was also very budget conscious and then, and making several things out of it. So we were never getting bored with the food. Mm, so we can do that with our Mediterranean millet meatballs. Yeah, Gosh, yeah. I could talk to you for a long time and I could eat with you longer. This is Chef Del Shroof, S-R-O-U-F-E. You can check out all his wonderfulness at chefdelshroof.com. The book is the China Study Family Cookbook. I will put all of uh, Chef Dell's books and links and URLs on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And I'm going to be seeing you out there in Columbus. I'm going to be at the Columbus Veg Fest in August. Oh, exciting. I look forward so, to it. Well, we'll we can hang base. out then. Maybe and we I'll... can have macaroni. Yes. <laughs> okay. Take good care. And everybody else, stay with us. We'll be back after these messages.
As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting, no more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you are ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. So happy to have you all here. Have you heard? Well, you have if you've been listening to this show for the past couple of weeks because, you know, we have a sponsor for a bit, HealthIQ.com. They have some really cool and fun health quizzes. But here's the really cool thing. They have noticed and science has noticed that people who are vegan tend to be healthier than most people who aren't. And because of that, HealthIQ.com has teamed with many of the country's top life insurance companies to offer savings to certain athletes because they're healthy too. You know, we're all kind of in awe of how did they do that. But guess who else is getting these discounted life insurance, these these, uh, savings on life insurance? That would be us. That's right, vegans. There is a saving in our future on life insurance because somebody noticed that we tend toward good health. So this is life insurance. It's the kind that protects your family if you're not here anymore. It's not health insurance. And this is not a completely vegan company, but the only dietary choice that qualifies for the savings right now anyway is the one that we make good for us. Check it out at healthiq.com slash mainstreet. And that'll be on the Main Street Vegan show notes as well over there at MainStreetVegan.net. HealthIQ.com slash Main Street. So there you go. And thanks to uh, the Health IQ people for noticing how well we're doing. I am so excited about getting to introduce our next guest. I have been excited about interviewing him since before I had this podcast. Because back in 2011, when I was researching my book, Main Street Vegan, that kind of started my whole life and company and brand and being, I read about this fascinating Alzheimer's researcher at the Harvard Medical School, and 
Dr. Deepak Chopra said that this gentleman had learned in, in his research early on that, and I, I may be saying this wrong so the doctor can correct me later, but as I remember it from 2011, that all animals, if they live long enough, can get Alzheimer's pathology, except herbivores, and that caused a uh, young doctor to go vegetarian in a day or so, and I thought it was so cool, and so I called him to see if I could put that in Main Street Vegan, and he kindly said yes. So here we are, lo these many years later. Dr. Rudolf Tanzi is Vice Chair of Neurology and Director of the Genetics and Aging Research Unit at Mass General Hospital and serves as the Joseph P. and Rose F. Kennedy Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. He served on the team that was first to find a disease gene, Huntington's disease, using human genetic markers, helping to launch the field of neurogenetics. He's co-author, he co-discovered all three early-onset familial Alzheimer's disease genes. He's published over 500 research papers, was named by Time magazine among the Time 100 most influential people in the world, and he has co-authored books, lots of them, Super Brain, New York Times bestseller, and one of my top 10 favorite books of all time, Super genes, because epigenetics fascinates me. I love having some control over my future. Welcome, Dr. Rudolph Tansy. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your kind words and your introduction. And so glad that um, we go far, so far back with your introduction to what I was doing um, back when I first met Deepak Chopra back in uh, 2011, 2010. So uh. Well, and, and now that the two of you together, I mentioned those two books are co-authored by, by you and, and Dr. Chopra, and they are amazing. So let's take us back. What makes somebody become a genetic researcher? Hmm. Uh, well, I was just uh, fascinated as an undergrad when the human genetics revolution, really the genetics revolution was just taking off. Um, the fact that you know, DNA could be cloned and spliced, and and you know, we read. I read about as a high school student all the marvels of what we could do with DNA research. And of course, I always, you know, had my concerns about genetic research going too far. And and that's probably never been more than today with you know new techniques for genomic editing. And and um, and you know, I don't. I, I believe in the genome the way a sailor believes in the sea, which is you respect it. And once you think you know it, it's going to take you out. And so I think I have to be very careful with the genome. But I've always fascinated by genetics and thought I'd like to learn more about it. And I uh, started studying genetics and bacteria when I was uh, an undergrad and then was lucky enough to uh, join Jim Gasella when we were in our early 20s. And we found the first variations in the human genome, and we were the first to find the disease gene where nothing was known about the disease, Huntington's, and we used genetics to find that gene. And then I switched over to Alzheimer's uh, after that and never looked back and been finding Alzheimer's genes and studying the brain uh, from genetics to uh, nutrition and lifestyle ever since. Well, you have a wonderful TED Talk where you talk about Alzheimer's. And I, I don't want to be a downer, but can you give us a couple of sentences why this is an important disease for all of us to know about, whether we have family history or not, just because we're human? Well, the fact is we all get Alzheimer's disease pathology after 40 years old. We all do. It's a question of how fast will it accumulate in you before it leads to inflammation in the brain. And it's inflammation that really takes you out. That's when you start suffering cognitive problems and start heading toward dementia. And inflammation... Um, whether it's in the brain or body, uh, is influenced heavily by lifestyle. Um, that's why we wrote supergenes and how your hobbies uh, affect your gene activity, your gene expression. So it's not just the genes you were dealt by mom and dad, but it's how you live your life that determine programs of how your genes are expressed. And, um, you know, basically your habits are dictating your genetic programs, and your genetic programs are dictating your health, your health span, and your longevity. Um, so there's really nothing more important. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, 
we know now uh, how the disease begins, and we know that it begins 15 years before symptoms. And I always make the point that it's crazy that we don't diagnose Alzheimer's disease until you have symptoms. Imagine if we did that with cancer. You know, the symptoms mm-hmm. of cancer would be organ failure and a two-inch tumor, and you'd be in pain. Well, imagine if we did that with heart disease. We waited till you have a heart attack or congestive heart failure. We said, okay, now you have heart disease. That's what we do with Alzheimer's. We wait till the brain goes so far downhill that dementia has begun, and we say, okay, now you have Alzheimer's. That's 5 million people. But if you count how many people have enough pathology that they're probably on their way to Alzheimer's dementia, that 5 million in the U.S. goes probably up to about 20 or 25 million. Criteria is how we first diagnose cancer or heart disease or diabetes. So there's a big paradigm shift coming where we have to start treating Alzheimer's way before symptoms, 15 years before symptoms. And that means that even if you're a 20 or 30-something right now, first of all, you have to worry about your parents and whether you have to take care of them after you get your kids off to college, you know, draining your bank account again and putting emotional burden on you. And you have to worry about yourself because this disease begins in, in, you know, in 30-year-olds, in 40-year-olds, in 50-year-olds. So everyone needs to think about it. You don't just wait to think if you're going to have symptoms. So this is a big paradigm shift. So what do we do? What does every layperson do to hedge their bets? Well, when we talk about brain health, we're really trying to avoid that endpoint of inflammation. Like in Alzheimer's disease, you get these plaques called senile plaques. I call them the match. You like the match. Then that causes in nerve cells the formation of something called tangles, these twisted filaments of tangles that kill the nerve cells. But you just kill little pockets of nerve cells in the brain. Remember, you have a, you know, 100 billion nerve cells. They're making about you know, uh, hundreds of trillions of connections. You can afford a few of them to be killed now and then, you know, here and there. They're brush fires. So you get the mass, you get the brush fires. But when the brain reacts to all of that with its very primitive immune system, remember the brain doesn't have the same immune system as the rest of the body. It's very primitive. If it looks like something goes wrong, these little cells in the brain that normally protect the nerve cells instead start attacking, thinking they have to protect you against some virus or bacteria, and you get inflammation. And now you get the the forest fire. And that's when you have the symptoms of the disease. So you want to avoid that. So when we talk about avoiding chronic inflammation in the brain and in the body, there are four categories, diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And I use an acronym for the brain of SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, where S is sleep, meaning get eight hours religiously, no excuses. Just try your best. H is handle, meaning handle stress, manage stress, meditate. I is, is um, interact, stay socially engaged, very important. E, exercise. If you're not doing exercise, at least get 8,000 steps of walking a day. L, learn new things. That's how you make new synapses and new connections in the brain. Synaptic reserve, as we call it, is very important for saving off disease. And D, which I think is most important, is diet. So we say Mediterranean diet and, and reduce red meat, but, you know, whenever I can, and on a show like this I can, I say go vegetarian or vegan, be more plant-based. And I remind people that in the animal kingdom, as you mentioned, Alzheimer's pathology with old age begins in, is in carnivores, but the oldest herbivores that have been looked at have not had Alzheimer's pathology. That is so exciting because having been an herbivore for 33 years, I hope I'm doing something right. I love SHIELD, and I'll put this in the show notes. This is great. So we've got sleep, handle stress, interact, exercise, learn new things, and diet. Whoa, that's perfect. Love it. Now, in Super Genes, which I've already said is one of my all-time favorite books, you have one of the most brilliant ways to change habits because, you know, I just read these shield things and most people who are interested in healthy living could say, yeah, yeah, I know that. What's new there? And yet doing it is the difficult thing. But you have this brilliant suggestion of making one change a week. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the idea is that look in these, you know, look in the major categories of diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction. 
Well, look at look at Shield. You know, add the learning and and uh, social engagement or interaction, and look at your habits and realize that habits are formed by repetition of the same act for approximately sixty days. So, if each week you look at that category, you look at those categories, and you look at how we describe it in our book, and there's other books that describe this just as well. I mean, we, you know, we we try to bring in information on what's actually happening at the genetic level when you change your bad habit into a good habit. So let's say one week you say, you know what, I'm not going to eat at McDonald's. Well, I shouldn't say McDonald's. I'm not going to eat fast food anymore. Um, and I'm going to start this week. And you stick with it the first week. Remember in your mind that the brain does not react well to resistance. If you try to, if you try to give up a habit, or start a new habit that's, that's healthy versus a bad habit, and you do it by resisting and saying, no, I can't do that. We like to say that the, brain, the way the brain works, and we wrote about this in Superbrain, the first book, resistance leads to persistence. Okay? If instead of resist, we say rewire. Don't resist, rewire. Rewire your neural networks, and in turn, that new behavior will rewire your genes or reprogram your gene expression. And the cool thing about genes, as we wrote about in supergenes, is that when you do the same thing over and over again, a new habit, your genes get chemically modified, actually get chemically modified into expression patterns, 1,000 genes or 2,000 genes all programmed anew to be expressed together to reinforce that new habit so it becomes automatic, it becomes a habit. So if you stick with a new habit, like I'm going to eat healthy foods rather than fast foods, after 60 days, you've rewired your brain by repetition, and you've reprogrammed your genes, and now it's automatic. You have to stick. You start it one week, and you stick with it for 60 days, and the rest is autopilot. If you just try to resist and say, no, I can't, I can't eat fast food, resistance will always lead to persistence. Don't resist, rewire. Wow. Well, it seriously works because when I was reading the book, the very first thing that I wanted to do, because I was also reading about how um, standing is the new smoking, (laughs) we're supposed to stand up more. So I thought I live in New York City, I take the subway everywhere, unless I really need to sit because it's horribly crowded and I'm just in the way, I'm going to stand. And because that was my very first change, I feel like I will remember it forever, and I do it all the time. And then people ask, you know, why don't you want to sit? And You know, I'm at the age where people always think they should give you a seat. And and then I get to talk to them about, you know, the whole thing and changing one thing a week. So it's cool. Now, I have a, a little um, email question here from someone who said, I read super genes, but what I don't understand about epigenetics is whether it means that I'm reprogramming only my own genes or my future children's too. Uh, so can you explain that? That's a great, great question. This is one of the most controversial areas and one of the most exciting areas of epigenetics. The idea that when you reprogram your genes chemically with modifications, that this can translate to the same chemical modifications in sperm and in eggs if you're at reproductive age. So there are experiments in mice that have been done. I'll give you an example where um, a male mouse was trained to be afraid of the smell of a certain, it's kind of like a cherry smell. They use a chemical ester that smells like cherries. And every time that smell came into the cage, the, the mouse, the study that they did, the mouse got a little bit of a foot shock. So now when he smelled the cherries, he's like, oh, no, I'm going to get that little shock on my foot. So as soon as he smelled cherries, he cowers in the corner. He doesn't want to step out into the cage, okay? Um, now, the mouse then had offspring, babies, and they took the babies who had never been trained to be afraid of the smell of cherries, and here are these baby mice in the cage, and they let the baby mice smell cherries. And what did they do? They cower in the corner, and they're afraid. They've never been trained. They inherited that phobia. So think about, now this is a mice, it's not a humans, of course, and, but think about that translated to humans. And, you know, your, your phobias, your addictions, your habits, what you're doing 
with your own gene programming based on your hobbies and habits every day. And think about the possibility that what happened in the mouse can happen in humans. And then that question becomes very, very exciting and very, very relevant. And it's a really hot topic today. So is it accepted, at least in, in the current generation, at, uh, is it accepted by your scientific peers that genetic expression can be changed, whether we're going to pass it on to the next generation, we'll leave that aside for the moment. But just in those of us who make these changes right now, we can change our genetic expression. Yes, the field accepts epigenetics. The field ah. accepts that repetitive habit-type behavior indeed changes chemical modifications. It's called methylation and acetylation of DNA and DNA-associated proteins so that now expressions been, of those genes have been modified. And when you modify expression of those genes, you're modifying hormone release, neurochemicals that then affect your behavior. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, no matter what the behavior, there are neurochemicals and neurotransmitters involved. Um, but rather than thinking you're just a servant to them, uh, you need to be their guide. You need to be the guide, the inventor, the teacher, the user of your brain and gene as opposed to just, you know, being on a rudderless ship, going along for the ride, giving into whatever habit comes up, whether it's healthy or not. You take charge. Mm-hmm. And before you do so, by not saying no, like, think, it's like your brain and your genes are like little kids, okay, especially your brain. If you just say no, the little kid's going to do whatever he wants. But if you train the kid with better behavior, you know, with children, um, you know, you can use there's the carrot or the stick. I mean, when you try to tell... Uh, a, a teenage kid who's not vegetarian, the benefits of becoming a vegetarian, um, you know, frankly, the stick doesn't work because they feel immortal and they feel like nothing can go wrong. So all you can offer is the carrot. You know, you can say, well, the good things will happen to you if you're vegetarian. It's the same thing with your brain. You have to actually rewire. You have to modify the behavior uh, based on uh, repetitive reasoning rather than just saying, no, don't eat the meat, or no, don't smoke the cigarette which I consider the same thing, by the way. Yeah, I <laughs> love that. That's going in the show notes. Don't eat the <laughs> meat, don't smoke the cigarette, which I consider the same thing. Good for you. I've been vegetarian. See, let's have some... Yeah, since Pardon? College, I've been vegetarian oh, that's... my whole family. Our little girl who's nine has been vegetarian since the womb. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, my daughter too, and she's, um, well, I won't say how old she is now, she's grown up, uh, but she works as a stunt performer and an aerialist, and so often, you know, you hear this kind of like, well, you know, I'm not sure you want to raise your kids this way, and it's like, well, I don't know about yours, but my kid is flying through the air with the greatest of ease, so (laughs) something's working, so well, congratulations on that and on your beautiful family. That's good to hear because, um, you know, I, I mean, I didn't become a vegetarian until I was uh, probably 19 years old. And to be honest, I did it for a girlfriend, and then I felt so much better. <laughs> you know, all my anxiety went away about taking tests. I I just felt a thousand times better physically, mentally, spiritually, and so I never went back. Um, well, so I, offering that same thing to our kids is a great thing, and in the end, they'll make their own decisions. Of course. You know, and and one of the challenges is, you know, to make sure that my daughter doesn't judge uh, kids who do eat meat. And I say, look, everyone's different, and others who are eating meat, that's what they do in their families, and maybe someday they'll change, but that's their business, and, you know, um, we have to accept what other people do. Yeah, you know, I I remember, you know, raising my daughter vegan, actually, and um, once my mother came to visit, and my daughter burst into tears. She was three and said, I'm sad because grandma eats animals. And it was it was such an interesting evening to to try to get across to her, grandma's this wonderful person, and there are some things that we see that she doesn't see, but there's so many things that she sees that we don't see, so let's listen to her wisdom. That's a, a very sophisticated concept. Oh, yeah, we've we've gone through the same thing. You know, we go to holiday dinners with my family, and, you know, and they try to, they actually try to keep the meat off the table and serve yeah. it from the side. Um, 
but you know, with, with time, kids just realize how it is. And, and it, yes. I mean, well, just future, as I was saying to, yes, excuse sorry. me. No, no, go ahead, please. Well, to the previous guest, that w- with a, a child, a really child or even teenager, to me, the greatest way to stay vegetarian or vegan is visit a farmed animal sanctuary. Because when they really get to know these other beings as just like, you know, the dog, the cat, the horse, it, there's just no going back. It's like once you have held a chicken, that chicken can't be a nugget anymore. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and we make sure that my daughter continues to interact with farm animals. Her, her school she goes to has all the, uh, had all the third graders spend three nights at a farm school where they just uh-huh. milk cows and hang out with farm animals directly. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that with kids, like I was saying before, that, you know, to, to, in order to tell them about, the, about vegetarianism or veganism, you have to emphasize, really have to emphasize uh, the carrot because they want to know what's going to be cool and good. But yes. adults who are getting older and a little more worried about their health, I, I find that the stick works a little bit better. Here's, here's <laughs> what, True. You know, here's what's going to go wrong with you if you keep eating meat, and here's what's going to go wrong with the planet. You know. Yes. And by the way, here's some pictures of a cow with big tears in its eyes as it sees its friend being slaughtered and it's next up on the block. Face reality. And yeah. so I think that works better with, with adults. I think you're right. Well, I want to ask you something that I've wondered for a long time, and you're the perfect person to ask. Back in the olden days, back when you and I were going vegetarian as, as teenagers, there was something very prevalent in the vegetarian literature that it was the animals had these pain poisonings that that came through their body at the time of slaughter, and that made people who eat the meat feel anxiety. Now, you talked about you stopped eating meat and you all of a sudden felt this calmness. Is there some scientific reason for that? Or what do you think? I mean, hormones of anxiety and terror and fear are released uh, as that cow is, is is seeing its colleagues and friends being slaughtered in front of its eyes and knows it's next up and they can smell the blood. I mean, they're, they're terrified and panicked. They're crying. There's tears in their eyes. You know, these are sentient beings. Um, now, um, how those, how all those neurochemicals and hormones that have been made, how much they perfuse the muscle, how much you ingest, how much they survive the cooking process, we don't really know. But, you know, I, I, I kind of subscribe to the, you know, kind of the ancient teachings of Pythagoras who said there was nothing more important than food uh, in terms of determining who we are and made the case, philosophically at least, and I think scientifically we still need to catch up, but philosophically that whatever you eat, your body and brain will be innately trained to kill again. It doesn't know, it doesn't know somebody else killed a cow for you. In other words, you're, you're getting... You're getting signals and cues to your body from meat that says, hey, this is the type of person you have to be if you want to be able to kill that cow again. So, you know, it's going to turn you into a different person if you eat a cow or you don't, you know, based on that philosophy. Now, scientifically, I don't know how much data there is to support that philosophy that you not only you are what you eat, but you become what you need to kill. Like you become the type of person that needs to kill again, just regardless of how you got that meat. But it's always fascinated me that Pythagoras, that was one of Pythagoras' main things was about food and how we are really what we eat, and it, and it completely shapes who we are. And I, I haven't kept up on the science on it, but I would like to get back to it. Mm. Well, I, I'm so happy you brought up Pythagoras, the, the father of vegetarianism. And I teach a, a program called, it's Main Street Vegan Academy. We train vegan lifestyle coaches. And our wonderful history um, teacher, Professor Rin Berry from the New School, passed away a couple of years ago. So I've sort of taken on the history class. And Whenever I talk about Pythagoras and how he wouldn't take a student for mathematics or philosophy or athletics, most people don't know he was a great athletic coach, unless they agreed to fast for 40 days 
and then eat what today we would call a raw vegan diet, it's stunning in his time. But there have been these super brains, (laughs) I guess, throughout history. So before we go ahead. No, I think Pythagoras had it together, you know, and going all the way back to, you know, uh, very early Shaivite Hindu practices to Buddhism. Um, I mean, even for those who are fascinated by Buddhism, uh, the first tenet is ahimsa, you know, do not harm. And that means do not harm other sentient beings. You know, when people say to me, well, you know, you're eating a plant and the, the plant has feelings. I'm like, well, yeah, the plant... I mean, I'm not going to deny any living thing has some level of awareness or feelings, but, you know, it's all a matter of where do you place the barrier in in your food chain between yourself and the next sentient beings and the evolutionary uh, uh, cycle down. So, you know, most people won't eat other humans. Um, so there's their barrier. But yes. next after humans, maybe they won't eat monkeys. Maybe they say, oh, I'd never eat a monkey. Too much like a human. I'd never eat a dolphin. But then, you know, then you finally get down to a cow and you say, oh, yeah, that's far enough down. Yeah, the eyes look like mine. It's a mammal. That's far enough down. Now I'll eat it. So the question is, where is your sentience barrier in your food chain? What a great phrase. Sentience barrier. So before we run out of time, we've got to get to what I think is your big happy point right now and what I'm really excited about having just discovered it. And that is about music and memory and your new app, Spark Memory Radio, tell us about this. Well, we, I'm a musician uh, on the side. So I play keyboards, and um, currently um, I've been playing keyboards in the studio for uh, Joe Perry of Aerosmith. So I did the keyboards for all the Joe Perry songs on the last Aerosmith album, and I just did a new solo album with Joe Perry, and... Um, I'm a jazz piano player and also Hammond B3 organ. So I've always played music. I'm going this week to go see Desmond Childs in, in New York, who's a prolific songwriter, to work on some music together. It's just a, whenever, you know, I do, music keeps me going. And I learned uh, that music is really incredibly good for Alzheimer's patients. It stimulates the brain. It's, and and, and it, the thing is, in Alzheimer's, the music memory part of the brain is not affected. So even in the late stages of the disease, patients remember how to play the piano or remember music. Think about Glenn Campbell. Uh, think about Junior Mance, the jazz piano player. They, they're able to play late into the disease process. So it, if, if you can stimulate the music area of the brain in an Alzheimer's patient, can you also stimulate brain activity, synaptic activity, and recall? And that's why we call this Spark Memories Radio. And the idea is that you're most emotionally engaged with the music you loved between 13 and 25 years old. So the algorithm has the caregiver put in the patient's age, anything you know about genre preference, and it plays hits from when they were 13 to 25, and then you notice, you know, is the patient who's in the early stages and agitated, are they, being, are they more calm and, and happier? Or if it's a late-stage patient who's vegetative, are they waking up a little bit and starting to speak? And then you can start saying which songs work and which ones don't, so you can program, to, you know, personally for the future the app uh, for that specific uh, patient, the caregiver or loved one can do that. And we've gotten incredible, you know, feedback and incredible stories back from people who are using it. Some of them are pretty funny, too. Well, how about somebody who doesn't have Alzheimer's pathology that they know of? Is it better to listen to music from when we were 13 to 25, or is it better to stimulate our brains with new things like music that's happening now? Excellent question. If you're stressed, if you have a big job in front of you, if you had a tough day, by all means, listen to music you love between 13 and 25 in the genre of your choice. But if you're in a good mood, you're happy, branch out, you know, and I literally do this, you know, on on the radio, I have one station that plays the newest music of people who are just starting out now on like serious radio, this Verge with the newest music. And then, and then I'll go back to the 70s or 80s channel, you know, if I'm stressed out. So I think it all that matters, what matters is if you're feeling stressed or you're feeling happy. When you're happy, branch out. When you're stressed, go back to the, the, uh, the, the uh, oldies. Okay. Oh, that makes so much sense. That's great. So is, is uh, Spark Memories Radio, is that really just for people who are having memory loss or is that for anybody who just wants a great source of the music that they love the most? 
it's anybody. I use it. I, I mean, I, I listen to it. I, I have my own, you know, program that I do for me because, especially if I'm if I need a little need to cheer up or if I'm a little stressed out, you know, I put on Spark and I'm listening to songs between I was 13 and 25, and it does wonders for your mood. So it's really for anybody. And we're thinking about actually branching out that way. We just launched it, so it's still early days. We haven't done a lot of PR yet. We're still getting it out there, but. You know, you're not the first person to suggest that, and I do it myself. And so I think there is some benefit to just having personalized music that you don't have to program yourself. You know, if you use some of these other uh, Spotify or, or whatever, you still have to come up with the songs. And the yeah. artist the like, this does it for you, and you say yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, but you actually hear them, and it learns. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember I, I was so into popular music when I was a teenager, and I was Ace Girl reporter. I had my press card, got into my first Beatles press conference when I was 14, met all the rock groups of that era, and always said to myself, I don't care if I'm 35, 55, I'm going to keep up with the popular music. But of course I didn't. <laughs> you know, once I got over 30, it was just kind of playing in the background which I guess is kind of the way it goes. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with the mood, mood of the music. I mean, you know, if you were used to, you know, if you're, if you're used to music that makes you feel good, you don't want to feel music that's just angry and complaining, right? Sure. So, you know, I found, you know, a station that plays very new music, but it's upbeat and it's it's not complaining about everything. You know, uh, well, it, you know, it makes you feel good, you know? So yes. That's why, you know, just, I mentioned the station Verge, on serious, I just came upon. I'm like, wow, this is all new music, but I like it. You know, so you seem very upbeat and like you don't complain either. And I'm just so so happy that we've had this chance to talk. Thank you so much for sharing all this fascinating information. We will put all of your URLs over at the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Anybody who is around Connecticut, I am going to be in Hamden, which is right next to New Haven, this weekend, Saturday, at Compassion Fest. It's going on all day long. I speak at 2 o'clock, CompassionFest.net. Hope you can be there. Share a little compassion to Unity Online Radio. Thank you so, so very much for hosting the Main Street Vegan Show. And to everybody who listened, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. ever considered that everything you think, say, and do is a prayer to the universe? What would your life be like if you activated the power of yes? Join Reverend Beverly Molander and her exciting guests on Affirmative Prayer, Activating the Power of Yes, to find out how they activated the power of yes in their lives, their communities, or even the world. If they can do it, you can too. Listen to Beverly Molander and her guests live every Monday at noon central. 1 p.m. Eastern on Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Never before in the history of humankind has change been so rapid. Jobs of yesterday are disappearing, and new careers are being discovered. Where competition once prevailed, there is now a pioneering spirit of cooperation and creativity. It has been said, real learning comes about when competition has ceased. When we release limiting ideas and fears, we are then free from a competitive living, and the way is open for cooperation and harmonious living. By relaxing, letting go, and renewing your faith in positive and good outcomes in all affairs, you can make a harmonious difference in your everyday
ever-changing world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.